Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage bed, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? As we look at Hosea and as I reflect on Hosea, it really is a mirror of who we are as human beings, isn't it? When things go well, we are quick to think that we've figured out the pattern or the means of manipulating God. Figure out we've done X, Y, and Z. This has happened. Therefore, we've figured out how to make God do our will. And many times when things go wrong, then we say, how can God do this to me? When we look at this, we're not naturally inclined as human beings as we look at the story of Israel, and hopefully we're not at this place in our Christian walk. Hopefully we're hearing this and truly desiring to conform to God, and he hasn't let his hand off us. But when we think about our status as human beings, Following God, one of the, I guess one of the things Hosea is really teaching me, and hopefully all of us, is following God is very dangerous. In the sense that we, we don't know where God is going to lead us. We don't know what God is going to do. We have to come to grips with the fact that the Spirit blows where the Spirit wishes, like the wind. And yet we have to trust that what God is doing in our lives is for our good. And he is leading us. And even when it feels as if we are walking alone, God is leading us. He's working on us. And this is one of the things that Hosea, even as you, you sense the frustration God has for his people, you also see how the Lord has not given up on his purpose for his people. And I think Hosea 8 really drives us home where the Lord continues to lay out all the wrong that Israel has done against him. But it ends with this beautiful promise of Egypt that that we'll get to. And it really is something beautiful that the Lord is saying and, and promising for his people, even in the midst of their ingratitude, even in the midst of their attempts to manipulate God, even in the midst of them seeing God's steadfast love and mercy as weakness, we have to praise God for who he is. And so when we look at this, and we wrestle with the reality of what's going on with Israel, again, the temptation is to think this is irrelevant, that this is what Israel did, this is the people back then. But we have to see this as a reflection of who we are as the Lord's redeemed. And so how do we learn from this as the Lord is teaching his people to pursue the Lord on his terms, to want the Lord to instruct us, to wait upon the Lord? How how does this communicate all this reality? Well, as we look at this, we'll see coming consequences, blind convictions, and then lastly, clueless consequences, but yet the Lord is still working. And so let's begin with the coming consequences, verses uh, 1 through 3. There's a call, and a call that goes forth 
is something that could be positive or something that's negative. Where the Lord says, set the trumpet to your lips. Now the trumpet, we can think back to Sinai. This is where we think of the, the positive thing. We think of Exodus 19, Exodus 20, where the people are to assemble together. The trumpet can be the call for Israel, sometimes assembling together for worship, uh, calling them together in the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 25. We can see it as a call to war, Joshua 6 verse 4, where they go into the land. So the call of the trumpet is a, a communication of urgency. It's communicating for the people to come together and to be prepared in the presence of God. But this is not so positive. Because there is another story we've heard where Hosea has used the trumpet before in 5 verse 8. And so now in chapter 8, when he picks up in chapter 5, what he has said regarding the trumpet, there is a tragedy where Israel is called out to assemble together for holy war. And it's a story that's recorded for us in Judges 19 and 20. And this is a tragic story. A story where Israel has almost gone to the same place as Sodom and Gomorrah. God's people, a place of refuge, a place where God is supposed to, to put heaven on earth. It has become a place of unrest a place of danger, a place of fright, and a place of gross and rampant immorality. And we find in the, the recollection in Judges 19 and 20 of an extermination of the tribe of Benjamin and how Israel then, uh, the other 11 tribes give their wives and, and they end up bringing back the tribe of Benjamin through the Lord's recreative command. But it's a tragedy. And here, we have a tragedy that's recalled for us for Israel, where the Lord saying to Israel, I'm not calling you together for the day of the Lord. I'm not calling you together to enter into the land of milk and honey. I'm calling you together to understand the danger of your circumstance. Because immediately after this, the Lord speaks of the nations hovering over Israel. They're trying to go to Assyria. They're trying to go to Egypt. They're trying to find these alliances for protection. But they're not looking to the Lord as their shield and defender. And the Lord uses this, this metaphor that's tragic. Because the word vulture can also be eagle. It's just basically a, a, a big bird of prey. It's language that the Lord has used for his people. And it recalls for us something significant in Israel's history. We think back, we think of the history of the Lord's recollection with his people, Deuteronomy 32.11. The Lord recalls there how he brings Israel out of Egypt like an eagle, caring for its young, hovering over his people, protecting them like an eagle over its young. No one's dumb enough to attack that nest so you understand that mighty bird is going to set it straight the young are not vulnerable they are protected but the lord also recalls the same sort of things where he recalls leading israel out of egypt in exodus 19 on eagle's wings again vulture eagle interchangeable in terms of how we've translated this in english protection we think of even christ himself 
when we think about Christ as he goes to Jerusalem in Luke 13, 34, how he wishes to gather Israel under his wing, like, under his wing like a mother hen. Again, making this echo back and how Israel has turned and spurned the rejection and, and love or rejected the love of God. And we think about what's going on now. The very imagery of God protecting his people is now the imagery of the bird coming against his people. And so it's the nations assembling like the bird of birds of prey, hunting, going forth, and seeking to dominate and to overcome the Lord's people. No longer the Lord protecting, but the Lord is the one who is now handing them over to the nations and saying, well, let the nations do what, what they want to do. And why? Why is the Lord so upset? When we find in verse 1 what they have done, they've transgressed my covenant, they've rebelled against my instruction, Torah, uh, law, instruction, this, this sort of thing. And what that means is the Lord has said, I've made it clear to you who I am as your God. And his recollection of the nations being like the eagle is recalling for us God's protective power. The Lord was the one who protected them. The Lord was the one who brought them through the sea. The Lord was the one who led them through the wilderness. The Lord brought them into the land. And now they turn on the Lord. They, they say, well, who's God? Can he protect us? Is God really there? And so the Lord's saying, I've given you my instruction. You, you know what I've said. You know what I've done. You've seen me work. And yet you don't care. So I'm going to hand you over to the nations. But we can say, well, why is the Lord being so harsh? We find in verse 2, all of a sudden, the people of God cry out. They say, my God, they're possessing the Lord, the true God of heaven. Israel, know you. In other words, we know you. We as your people, the wrestling people, have wrestled with you. We know you. Well, the Lord understands what's going on here. This is what Israel cries out, but this is what I mentioned in the introduction. All of a sudden, we can turn and say, why is God doing this to me? Without any reflection, without any introspection, or wondering who God is and who we are in terms of our redeeming mercy. I mean, even Peter recounts not every suffering is necessarily because we deserve it, but it's understanding the bigger picture. Where are we in terms of redemptive history? Who are we in relation to God? These are the questions we are called to ask. And so the Lord recounts what Israel has done. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue them. So the spurning is where we can say, well, you know, why is the Lord so cruel? Why is the Lord being so mean? Well, the Lord has given this warning in Deuteronomy 28, verse 7, specifically to Israel. In this unique time, rebel against me, I hand you over to the nations. We hear them spurning the Lord and spurning his goodness. You know, they spurned the good. This is sort of the Lord tongue-in-cheek showing that he has a sense of humor. Because spurning, as we find in Hebrew, there's a pun, there's an intention here. Spurn is zanach. Harlotry is zanach. So when you hear zanach versus zanach, Israel could say, if they're hearing this, well, is it we spurned you or harlotry? And the Lord's saying, yes. So, so you can understand the, the Lord's humor coming through. Yes is the answer. 
you have spurned me in your harlotry, is, is sort of the pun that's going on in, in Hosea. They pursued the other gods. They pursued the other things contrary to the true God. And so the, the Hebrew is bringing out uh, this intention of how the Lord is saying, this is the proof of how you've spurned me, by not being committed and faithful to me as the Lord's redeemed. And so as, as we hear this, and we think about this, we understand, yes, there are coming consequences. They don't understand these consequences. But we find there's also blind convictions that Israel has. And we're kind of lumping a bunch of stuff together, but verses 4 through 10, uh, we can see this. And so with these blind convictions, we can say, well, well what is the problem? What else is the Lord saying? Well, the Lord says they, they made kings but not through me. This is an important distinction. Israel, in its uniqueness, is to uh, be one that truly desires to establish kings in the line of Judah. They want to follow the kings and the messianic lineage as was promised. And so they are to truly discern uh, who's to be the rightful king. Now they were warned uh, by Samuel that when they establish these kings, they, they are ones that are going to be like the other nations. That's what Israel said. We want to be like the other nations that have a visible king. Well, the thing Israel had to learn and what Solomon try, or, um, Samuel tried to communicate to them was that they have a king. It is God. God is their king. But yet, what does the Lord remind Samuel? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Israel is not content with the Lord being their king. They want a visible, tangible king. They want one they can see leading them into battle. And so when, when Israel is going on making these kings, they're not doing this even with any thought to God. There's no thought to a Messiah. There's no, no concept of the Messiah. They truly have become like the other nations. They set up princes. In other words, they're setting up other royalty, but the Lord does not know it. Now, it's not that God's ignorant and God doesn't see what's going on. The point is, they're not inquiring of God. And, and nothing, they're not doing anything inquiring of God. They experience some setback and they say, oh, we know the Lord. And the Lord says, no, you don't. You don't really know me. You're living completely contrary. But why are they doing this? Well, they're setting up their own idols. So we find as Israel does this, not only are they setting up kings like other nations, not only are they living like the other nations, completely forgetting their uniqueness and what they are called to do, but they take silver and gold and they make their idols. Now this is Something where, where we think back in the history of Israel with their idols and the false worship of what's going on. We think of the golden calf and setting up the golden calf as they did in Samaria that Hosea will recall. Setting up these gold and silver idols. You would think that Israel would think back to the vulture motif, the exodus motif, Moses on Sinai, losing thought, but losing sight of their God. But what do they do? They do what they did back then. They take their gold, they take their silver, and make up idols. And, and Moses communicates the, the comedy of this. 
He smashes the idol, puts it in the water, makes him drink the gold, makes him uh, truly consume it. The irony being, they have to make this God unify with them. And when the God unifies with them, this God doesn't stay with them. Uh, the end result uh, uh, certainly shows who this God is, that the God doesn't stay with them. Uh, but this God becomes the excrement. It's, it's not something that's lasting and enduring. That's the intention of them drinking it. But the God of heaven is a God who walks with his people. The God who unites his people to himself gives true everlasting life. He, we don't have to consume him. He's the one who brings us up. He's the one who joins himself to us. And so this is where he says to their destruction, right? This isn't something that's lasting. This isn't something that's going to protect them. He goes on and recounts what we see with Samaria. Again, that reminding of what has happened and what we've seen in northern Israel. We've recounted this over the weeks. We have this verse 6 of broken to pieces, recounting again that golden calf. In other words, all these themes are coming out of the Exodus, coming out of Israel in the wilderness, coming out in their failing, that they haven't learned from the Lord's instruction. They haven't truly heard who God is. They continue to hire the craftsmen. They continue to do what they can. And so what happens? Well, they're the ones that as they go about their days, they, they sow to the wind, right? So basically, this is a, the foolish farmer just throwing his seed in the air, and it goes wherever. So it can end on anyone's property, anyone's land. It, it doesn't do anything. And they're going to experience the chaos of the whirlwind. But it goes on even more. Because as he talks about this metaphor in verse 7, that the standing grain has no heads. It means basically it has no substance. That, that you could look out, there's no flower, there's no substance to what they have planted. There, there's no food. There's a famine. And then he says, and, and here's the absurdity of you guys. You've appealed to Assyria, to Egypt. You think, oh, they'll save us. He said, what's going to happen? Anything that is produced, do you think they're going to give you first choice? Well, those nations are going to come in and take anything that's produced. And that's where he says strangers would devour it. He's saying, here's the absurdity of you guys turning to idols. Didn't preserve you in the wilderness. You consumed them. They didn't even stay with you, to put it delicately. Here we have you guys planting this, this green thing. And, oh, this will last. It's not going to stay with you. Foreigners are going to come and eat it. They're going to consume it. You're not going to get the choice of it. We have then Israel being swallowed up. It's a useless vessel. It's a vessel that might provide some hope. You think it's going to hold some water, but it doesn't. We have then, they have their allies. They have their nations. They don't last. We have then this reality of, of who they are. That they've gone up to Assyria. They're like a wild donkey. Now this motif as well. The other things we, we can piece together, this is an important motif. Because as they wander around, you think of the banishment of Cain from Eden. Forced to wander the earth, banished east of Eden. My punishment is more than I can bear, Cain says. But the wild donkey is something that is a, a curse of Ishmael. Ishmael is the one who's going to be the wild donkey of a man. The, the Hebrew is a little more earthy as it brings it out. 
But the reality is there's a wild donkey of a man always making war, always creating mischief, always creating trouble. And he's saying this is what Israel has become. You see, Israel has become the banished brother is the point of this. They have become like Cain, banished from the Garden of Eden. They become like Ishmael, banished from Abraham's household. They go up, they create trouble, they create their own havoc, their own drama, and they have nothing. They are like the Cains and Ishmaelites of this age. This is not who Israel was to be. The Lord is the one who's recalling for them. They appeal to the nations. The nations demand tribute. They appeal to the nations. The nations demand tribute. In other words, the more they try and reach out to preserve themselves, the deeper they get themselves into debt, into trouble, into harm. The kings are not going to protect them. The kings of this age will only exploit them. The idols of this age will not last and endure. Only the true God of heaven lasts and endures and leads his people. And so as we see this, it's an ultimate tragedy of their immorality. They think they're following gods. They think they're following their convictions. But like anyone who's truly lost in sin, they fail to see the depth of their problem. They're not understanding the promise of God is sure and certain he's a shield and defender. Going on then to our last point briefly, verses 11 through 14, we have the clueless consequences. Now when we think about, about these consequences, we have Ephraim as the one who multiplies their altars for sinning, so the Lord's playing on this. They make their altars, they become to him altars for sinning. In other words, Israel's building, or Ephraim, Israel, building their altars, thinking this is good, right? And when we think of an altar, normally we think of this as good. Sacrifices are being offered. Commitment to the Lord is being shown in these sacrifices. So with Ephraim having all these altars, we think, wow, what a pious, godly people. But the Lord says they multiplied it for their sinning. We have then, they have become him altars for sinning. Now we might say, well, why, why is this such a problem? Why, why is this such an issue? Well, the altars have become for them a place of sinning because what does man do? We think we can take God and we can lead him around. And so what happens with these altars is, is Israel thinks that as they make these altars, God's going to, to really embrace them. And, and as God really embraces, as, as they really do this, God's going to lead them and do what they want as it gets picked up again in verse 13. They make these sacrificial offerings. They consume it. It's not that Israel's having a barbecue. It's Israel seeing sacrifices as a cost of business. Sacrifice a cow, the Lord gives you a great harvest. Sacrifice two cows, you get a greater harvest. See, it's something mechanical. We can make God do what we want. And so there's, there's no understanding that God is just gracious. God is benevolent. God is one who provides in his providence and for whatever reason seeks to see to it that our needs are met. And rather than being humble before God and saying, wow, Lord, who are we? 
a people who have transgressed your covenant, told you to get out of Eden, heard the voice of Satan, listened to his voice. We struggle to listen to your voice today. And what do you do? You provide for us, you care for us. Thank you. Thank you, O Lord. But Israel's not there. They say, do these sacrifices, God will bless you. Do X, Y, and Z, God will bless you. This is how we manipulate the God of heaven. We kind of go to the God of the Baals. We kind of go to these different fertility practices. And as we observe these things, God is pleased with us because we're blessed. And the Lord's saying, no, I'm not. I will punish your sins. You will not experience the benefit of this. And as the Lord goes, what does he say in between verses 11 and, 10 and 13? In verse 12, again, my laws, my Torah, my instruction. So he's saying, I, I could write you even more instruction. I can send you more prophets, right? Hosea's role-playing the role of God coming to an unfaithful people who do not value a, a, a commitment to one God or to one husband as we see with Hosea and Gomer. So he, he sent this prophet. He's bringing his instruction. But what do they do? Eh, it's a strange thing. What, what is this? this? This what? God demands what? Right? That's what Israel's saying, that, that they're so cloudy in their history, their vision, that they've relived it. They rebuilt the golden calf. How did that end for Israel? That's what Hosea is saying. How did that end for you? Was that a good story? Was Moses pleased? Was God happy with you? No. God almost wiped you off the face of the earth, didn't he? See, the instruction is there. The Lord has given his word. Israel refuses to believe it. So now they're going to have this consequence of returning to Egypt. Now when we hear this, we might say, well, the Lord's going to hand them over uh, to their alliance. And so as they make their alliance, they're going to experience the consequence. And so there's, there's several ways we can uh, see this. We see that Israel may be hoping in Egypt, right? And so the Lord's going to hand them over to the consequence of that. This would kind of be what we've seen uh, in, in the past with Hosea trying to find his hope, uh, King Hosea trying to find his hope in this. But it's missing the wilderness motif, right? Hosea the prophet has brought out a reshaping of Israel in the wilderness, a reshaping of who they are. Israel doesn't hear the word of God. He's going to bring them to the wilderness and reshape them. It's not just handing them over. It, Egypt means something else for the prophet. So, so I don't go with that interpretation. Another way is that they might flee to Egypt trying to find protection. This is Jeremiah 43, where Jeremiah uh, tells the people of Israel to sit tight, that, that the Lord will protect them. But again, that, that's not really bringing out the full wilderness motif. It's not really bringing out in any sort of judgment reshaping motif that we found in Hosea. Uh, we find that Hosea is the one who does make mention of Egypt. And he tells us what this means, and so we need to listen to the prophet's own words. Because he tells us in 2 verse 14 and 15 that the Lord is going to reshape his people. How? He will bring them out of Egypt like he has done. So right here in verse 13, we have a reminder. A reminder of the Lord's intention of bringing about another true exodus. 
That he's saying this Canaan experiment, if you will, not that God's ignorant of how this is going to turn out. Moses already predicted it. But, you know, as Paul says, it's a pedagogue. It's showing us we're not going to bring heaven on earth. What does he promise? He's promising to take Israel, bring them into another enslavement, into another exile, and to bring about another exodus. He's prophesying Christ. Matthew's gospel, where Matthew lays out the the significance of Christ reliving the history of Israel for us. And so right here, Hosea is saying, people of the New Testament, listen to this. We are prone to doubt the word of God. We are prone to doubt the promises of God. We are prone to come up with our own creative ways uh, to, to be idolatrous that we say is not idolatrous, right? I mean, if you ask Israel, we're not idolatrous. We just have a lot of temples to a lot of gods because we're very pious and spiritual. And Hosea is saying, no, you're being idolatrous. Uh, you're not worshiping the true God. And so that's the point. The Lord's going to take everything that distracts his people, remove it from them, recreate them, and bring them into the true land of rest. As is underscored in verse 14. Israel has forgotten his maker. Judah has multiplied his fortified cities. In other words, what do we do? You know, I, I think of this and go through this and think again of Psalm 23 and the brilliance of it. How you look at the Psalms and how it's arranged in five books. And I think the theory is correct that, that people are putting out there. Book one, God is our king, David is his representative. Book two, Solomon's his successor. We're doing well. Wait a minute, Solomon's going apostate. Book three, what do we do now that Solomon's gone apostate? Book four, God is our king. He is our redeemer. We are content with him. Book five, we live in light of the promise of our God. But Psalm 23 being placed in the first book of Psalms. You know, you, you read verse 14. We build our fortresses. We build our safety net. And it just hit home again where the Lord says, I prepare a place in the midst of your enemies. A table is prepared in the midst of my enemies. Do we really think about that imagery? I mean, if you really put this imagery correctly, I mean, there's a place in the bang tails you can go through a series of, of forestry where you feel safe, you go out into a meadow, and you can hear all sorts of wildlife. You can hear mountain lions calling out, and you feel vulnerable. But if you put this in our contemporary context, this would be like snipers tracking you. Apache helicopters tracking you. You have scouts pursuing you and special forces trying to take you out. And you're running along the tree line so no one can get a clear visual of where you are. And then the Lord says, hey, let's go out in the middle of that, of that field there that's wide open and we're just going to have a spot of tea. And, and we're just going to sit at that table and we're just going to catch up. And you're saying, wait a minute, a sniper hasn't gotten me. The Apache helicopters haven't found me. The scouts don't know where I am. We're making headway. Let's stay in the trees and get out of here. But this is what the Lord is saying to Israel and to us and to Abraham. Before he goes into Egypt, again and again and again, we see the struggle of God's people, including ourselves. When the Lord says, I am a shield and defender, 
And in Psalm 23, when the Lord says, I will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death, I will prepare a place in the midst of your enemies. It means that in the midst of that chaos, with all these forces trying to kill you and exterminate you and terminate you, the Lord is there meeting with you at a table in the most vulnerable, dangerous place, and no one can get to you. That's the point of what Hosea is laying out here. That this is a protective power and mercy of God that he freely bestows upon us. And as, as we hear this, hopefully it sinks in and it resonates. When Abraham goes to Egypt, two times he tries to lie and protect himself, setting up his own stronghold, right? This is how I'll preserve myself. And yet we see how the Lord fixes that mess that Abraham has set for himself. So often we can do the same thing. This is a reminder when we think about this reshaping of Egypt and this exodus, where we start with that very question. Why do we want to pursue God on his terms? Because he's our redeemer, is a simple answer. He is our maker. He is our shield. He is our defender. The very imagery that the Lord uses of the exodus of being the eagle who protects his people where he turns at and he allows the nations to come against his people. In other words, if the Lord didn't want the nations to come against his people, they wouldn't come against his people. When we read from Peter, and Peter tells us about suffering, and, and notice how Peter sets that up, because I'm sure Peter himself knows that temptation of wanting glory and wrestling with, why do I want to suffer? I'm going to deny my Lord rather than be on a cross next to him, right? Peter understands that. He understands that struggle. We see it. But what does he say? We suffer. We endure it for the good and glory of our God. Why? Because Christ has overcome. Christ has suffered on your behalf. Christ has triumphed. And so Hosea is saying to Israel, you've made a mess of things. God's going to clean it up. He's going to walk with you through the midst of it, and he will deliver you and still be a shield and defender. But let's be clear, you made the mess of it. God's going to clean it up, and he will bring you into his rest. The call for us as we hear this is to be conscious of who we are, a people who are prone to pursue gods we can control, a people who are prone to trust in everything other than the promises of the gospel. But the Lord says, you will return to Egypt. In other words, this is a way of saying, I will reshape you. I will remold you. The call for us as Christ's people is to truly want to give ourselves over to the Spirit, to want to have the Lord shape us, mold us, conform us. As I mentioned in the introduction, it's dangerous. It's scary. We're not the only ones who wrestle with this. Abraham did. Sarah did. We see the patriarchs wrestling with this. Israel wrestles with it. But what do we see consistently? Not only do we see the, the sin and fall of God's people, but we see the consistent mercy of our God. Let us learn from those who have gone before us. And let us understand it's not standing over them in moral superiority, but it's understanding we can fall into these same sorts of things. We can self-justify the same way. 
Let us then bow our knee before our Savior. Let us hear the assuring words, the shield and defender as he comes to Abraham, the defender and protector of his people, the one who walks in the midst of his people in the wilderness sojourn, the God who leads and empowers, the God who moves his people from death to life, having passed through hell. And brothers and sisters, when we really think about the reality of the threat of hell being removed from us, what do we ultimately have to fear? As we are joined and united to Christ, as we walk by faith, by the power of his spirit, by his gracious mercy, let us then continue to conform to him out of gratitude, seeing the surety and certainty of Christ's work. Let us move forward in the confidence that our shield and defender will never fail. Let us cling to him and walk in him, finding our life and our redeemer and maker. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is urcbelgrade.com, to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.